Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In today's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted interviews writer and podcaster Sean Mahoney. You can read Sean's writing at seanalogs.com and check out his podcast, Sloshed Cinema. This week is just part one of Ted's conversation with Sean, so don't go anywhere. So what does it mean to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgendered in America today? What did it mean in the 80s? I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I've had a few lesbian and gay friends over the course of my lifetime, and I'm a college-educated, open-minded person. But to be honest, I haven't exactly sought out friends of the LGBT community. I know I'm against hate crimes, but yet I haven't attended any LGBT marches or have been active in promoting legislation for gay rights. I know I back gay marriage, but haven't exactly gone out of my way to let my voice be heard. To be honest, I think that in my own white, male, college-educated world, I've always had a choice on how much I want to learn about repressed people. I mean, let's face it, as a white, educated male, there just isn't really prejudice to deal with. But what if that wasn't the case? What if I was gay and had to come out of my family as an adolescent and deal with all the stigma and prejudice around being gay in America? Would I then be more deeply involved in gay rights activism, or would I be more likely to be involved with alcohol or drugs? And on top of that, what if my family was addicted, and that made me even more likely to develop a drinking or drug addiction in my life? Well, according to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, in 2017, studies have shown that when compared with the general population, gay and bisexual men, lesbian and transgendered individuals are more likely to use alcohol or drugs, have higher rates of substance abuse, increased risk for suicide, increased risk for development of psychiatric disorders such as anxiety and depression, and increased risk for continued heavy drinking later in life. But why? We have a great guest on our show, Sean Mahoney, and he is coming at us all the way from Portland, and we're going to talk to him about his addiction podcast and blog, as well as what he's been up to. So without further ado, um, let's welcome Sean to the show, and maybe Sean, if you could um, give us a few sh- uh, shout-out words. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Ted, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, um, shout out words. Like what do we, what do we want for shout out words? Yeah. Um, hip hip hooray. Hip hip hooray. (laughs) That works. (laughs) 7.30 in the morning. Hip hip hooray is appropriate, I guess. You are... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, that works. You are totally ready to roll. Yeah. Well, um, once again, thanks for having us. Thanks for having you on the show. But tell us a little bit about um, who you are today and maybe uh, a little bit about your path to recovery. Sure. So um, I'm 44 years old. 
I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm a, a freelance writer. Um, I'm married to my husband, Michael, and um, my life is like really big and amazing. And it's because I'm sober now. I started using at 14, uh, using and drinking. I come from an alcoholic home. I'm the classic uh, shake my family tree and you'll get hit by bottles. Um, I have, you know, I'm Irish and Swedish, so do the math. And uh, so I, I'm from a hotbed of mental health. And um, it's all over my family. And I, I grew up knowing it was all over my family. My dad has been sober for over 30 years. Um, and so I, uh, I knew it as a teenager. And I always thought I could outrun it. You know what I mean? Like I always thought it wasn't. I wasn't going to have it. I, it wasn't going to look that way for me. I was just having a good time. Mm. Um, unfortunately, that good time lasted <laughs> over 20 years, and it wasn't always a good time. Um, it started at 14 smoking cigarettes and drinking, and um, it felt amazing because my life in an alcoholic home and growing up gay in the 80s, it was stressful and it was hard. And by the time I started drinking, I was ready for that drink. I was like, yeah, bring it on. And drugs and alcohol provided a relief from reality that I needed. And um, I was always a super imaginative kid. I always was super creative. I am definitely the square peg of a group. Um, I think in my family, I'm not only the black sheep, but I'm also the pink sheep. And so I, uh, I, um, I needed something to make me fit in and make me relax. And drugs and alcohol did that immediately. And um, I had a alcohol-related arrest by the time I was 15. I uh, was using cocaine by the time I was 17. I had used everything, including heroin, by the time I was 20. So... Um, it was pretty escalated and out of control quickly. So much to the fact that by the time I was 19, I had a thought. I was in my first year of college, and I had a thought. I was not drinking, and I wasn't smoking. And I had a thought, and I thought, hey, this actually feels good. This is probably what I should do. Um, that thought did not last very long. And by the time I was 20, it was the 90s. So me and all of my friends were taking ecstasy and going to raves and staying out until like six o'clock in the morning. It's a nineties thing to do. Um, and ecstasy was so great that being the addict that I am, I wanted my whole life to feel like that all of the time, you know? So I did ecstasy until it stopped working. I did it every weekend for several months and, um, it stopped working It effectively stopped working. And that moved into crystal meth. And uh, by the time I was 21, I had bottomed out from both of those things. But I was 21, so I could legally start drinking. So that was part of the timing. <laughs> I was like, oh, cool. It just always transitioned for me. It was always transitioned. It was one thing. And if that stopped working, then there was something else. Or if it became problematic, I could always change to something else. And that was a habit from adolescence. And... Um, so I, uh, I kind of had a additional bottom again with crystal meth when I was 22 and sensing, you know, it's funny in my family, I have three siblings 
And um, when you grow up in an alcoholic home, you kind of raise each other because your parents are incapable. Um, and not that they were bad parents or loving parents. And um, I'm super close to them now, but you know, people always say, you know, parents do the best that they can. Well, kids in those situations do the best that they can too, because we had to act like the grownups. So my brothers and sisters sort of sensed in that moment when I was 22, um, that everything was not okay. And my brother at the time was living in Los Angeles and I was, um, in Colorado where I grew up and, um, he had called me and said, why don't you move to LA? And everybody in my family also kind of thought that this would be a good idea without really calling it out. You know what I mean? That knowing that I had a problem with drugs, there was, I'm sure. Um, was it like this idea, like move you out there so then you'll get clean? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But without actually identifying that as the issue. But you're headed to Los Angeles to get clean. Right. <laughs> at, at 22. Two. <laughs> In the 90s, what's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah, right. What an amazing idea. Maybe you run into Axl Rose and uh, from Guns N' Roses, and he leads you down the path of sobriety, you know? Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, it's a terrible idea. And, of course, within moments, I had found all my people, all my drinking people, and I was going to clubs all the time and um, – you know, with other pillars of sobriety like Courtney Love and George Michael. So, you know, like it was um, it was problematic from the get go again, but it was also fun. I was 23. I was on the guest list of places. I, I was doing extra work in movies. I was hanging out with a bunch of other people who didn't want to grow up, too. And um, and like when the group mission is to not feel reality then you can all not feel reality together. Mm. However, there was very real life stuff like, I don't know, paying my bills and like paying my rent on time, which were always problematic. Like, you know, turns out landlords are not very forgiving when you spend money on cocaine and liquor instead of paying your rent. Yeah. Who like <laughs> like being able to be able to say to them, Hey, I don't got the rent because, uh, I just put it up my nose like last night. So hey, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. It took me three landlords to figure out that they're not cool with that. But, um, yeah. And so it was problematic from the get go. You know, I was in a relationship with somebody who drank every day too, like me. And, um, that relationship went on for over a decade and the decline was bad. You know, it's, I think it's, you hear that it only gets worse over time. And I think that that might sound dramatic and it might sound like, well, well, maybe it's different for some people from where I sit. I think it was not different for me. The progression was pretty severe. Um, my health declined, uh, my relationships declined. My finances were a hot mess. I mean, everything was bad. But I was, again, I had surrounded myself with other daily drinkers. and it, But, you know, it went from being, like, on the guest list at clubs to drinking at dive bars to eventually drinking seven nights a week at home. Mm-hmm. And I was waiting tables. And so everybody in that world, too, is prone to addiction and alcoholism. And my Coke dealer was also the busboy at the restaurant where I worked. 
And so I had really designed my life around drinking and using. It was set up so that um, it could be facilitated really easy. And um, so I had tried to quit in 2008 at the age of 35. I thought, okay, this is probably a good time. So you're going pretty strong from like age 15 to age 35. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With little tiny, I mean, not noteworthy breaks. Like maybe thirty days, kid, or maybe two months, maybe. Okay. So maybe, and and um, I would I tried a myriad of things. Like maybe I can only smoke pot, or <laughs> maybe I could just drink wine, or maybe you know all the little things you could do. Which is kind of like yeah, which is kind of like a lot of the. You know, just in a lot of the people over the years that I've worked with, you know, I've hear that story over and over again that you sort of like, even though you might end up showing up at rehab like 10 years down the road, you actually on your own try to make little deals with yourself and try to figure it out on your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's a big misnomer that like you only relapse when you're like officially in recovery. And it's like, that's not true because most people try it on their own so many times yes. and fail so many times. And it was a um, New Year's resolution of mine when I turned 30 that I would stop drinking. I had told my mom this, who has, as the mother of two alcoholics and being married to an alcoholic, has gotten the help that she needs on her own through Al-Anon. And, um, and I remember she said to me, she's like, well, maybe you need to do it like, with a program. Mm. And I, nah, I'm fine. I'm good. My, my actual goal looking at it now was like, if I take a break, maybe I'll be able to drink normally. Yeah. Strike yeah. a deal. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, even though it sounds like so crazy now looking back at it, I mean, this is like what you're outlining is the common path for so many people. Absolutely. You, know, you want to go back. You want to be able to go back and, and, and be a recreational user or drinker. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing the billboards of people on Sunset Boulevard drinking tequila and looking like classy individuals, and I thought I should I should do that. Well, I never. It was never classy for me, and it was never cool, and it was never sophisticated, and it was always problematic. And so, I stopped on my own at thirty five. I got about five months um, by myself, white knuckling it. My life got complicated. Um, a bunch of stuff had happened and I ended up picking up a bottle of wine thinking I'm just going to like, this will be okay. If I just like, I can, this I can handle. Well, I mean, I couldn't and, um, it got bad pretty quickly. And then the following five months were really bad. And I, um, ended up bottoming out in, uh, like the end of December of 2008. And so my sobriety date is January 2nd, 2009. It would have been January 1st, but mimosas and all of that stuff happened. <laughs> the mimosa cheated you out of the day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and it was going to be another New Year's resolution. But this time I had gotten my family involved and reached out. And, um, they knew I was in pretty bad shape. And, um, so I had to commit myself 100% to it. And what was different this time was uh, using other people and having support and being honest about it too. 
And um, I, uh, I also, you know, I had a bunch of ideas like, oh, maybe I could go to like a super fancy rehab and only spend like a month there and I would be okay. And I remember talking to my dad and my sister who are both sober and um, they both convinced me that, you know, they got sober through 12 step programs, specifically AA. And um, they said, well, maybe you should just try that first. And I did. And, um, you know, Los Angeles is a fabulous place to bottom out from drugs and alcohol because there's literally like 30,000 meetings a week. So there's no excuse to not find any kind of recovery and, and like meetings for meetings for actors, meetings for lawyers, meetings for LGBT meetings. I mean, you name it, they got it. So, um, and where I was getting sober, I moved out of, I broke up with my ex. I moved out of my old neighborhood in Silver Lake because I knew I could not be around the things and the job and the people because I was too susceptible. You know, I always, if everybody around me was drinking, I was drinking too, you know? And so I really had to like change my lifestyle a hundred percent. And, um, which I know they don't always recommend, you know, people say don't make any changes when you first get sober. But for me, it was a matter of life or death. So I moved over to the beach and I moved to Santa Monica and, um, I started to go to meetings there and, um, yeah. And it was a lot of work. It was, I initially, I thought again, eh, I go to one or two and I'll figure it out and I'll be okay. And then fairly quickly it revealed to myself that I was in pretty bad shape. And, um, so yeah, I, I stayed and, you know, um, all goes according to plan by January of 2018, I will have nine years, which is amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And it blows my mind because like, you know, I'm somebody who's drank and used ever since I was a teenager. According to the National Institute of Health, there's an estimated 28 million children living with alcoholic parents in the USA. Children of alcoholics, or COAs, are more likely to have substance abuse problems themselves, be abused or neglected, have a psychiatric diagnosis such as anxiety and depression, or have more health problems than children who are not raised in homes with alcoholics. But there's another side to the coin. The good news is that the majority, some 60% of COAs, actually do not have significant problems with their functioning. These people seem to have positive life outcomes. They seem to demonstrate a great deal of resiliency, persistence, and ability to overcome the obstacles that life presents them. So maybe this idea that because you're brought up in a dysfunctional family with raging alcoholics who shut down your communication patterns and kind of set your life up to be a disaster isn't so certain after all. What's different now is, and what's different this time, as opposed to all the time that I made promises to myself, is that I um, I ask for help, and I continue to ask for help. Um, I think there's an idea that, or at least an idea I always had, that's like you stop drinking, and and life immediately gets easier. And it's like that was not the case for me. Life immediately got more complicated. Uh, and so I've had to continue to ask for help and, um, seek help from different places and different sources. So yeah, 
I mean, that's kind of it in a nutshell, you know? Yeah, I have a, a question. Sure. Just as you were talking about that part about, you know, I realized I needed to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And so often, like, that is, you know, the wisdom of people that have gotten sober. Right. But yet when we look at your journey and we trace it, it that was really a challenge throughout is like coming to terms with, wait a second, I actually do need help. I can't go it alone, so to speak. And so what I'm always, like, curious about is if you could identify, like, any moment or moments where you thought it shifted from, I'm going to figure this out on my own. I'm going to, you know, somehow come back as a recreational drinker. Well, I don't think I can do that. Um, I'm still going to try to figure it out on my own. But wh- what do you think shifted that opened that door for you? Because it sounds like an amazing door to open. Um, that's a great question. And it actually was too. I mean, um, I think, you know, what had happened when I had bottomed out is that my younger brother was back in town in LA and my older brother was there too. And, um, it was bad enough that time. And it was so many years of repeating the same behaviors and things being out of control and continuing to be out of control and to hit a point where I think I realized that I didn't have it on my own. I couldn't do it on my own. What I'd been trying to do for so long is to like, contain it on my own. So I had breakfast with my younger brother on, it was like new year's day and, um, or no, it was a day after. And I remember saying, telling him what had happened and what was going on with me and, um, and saying, I need help. And, uh, and then that sort of, being that I have siblings where we've always taken care of each other, that sort of ignited everybody rallying around me, which was amazing. And I know a lot of people who get sober don't have that. Um, so is, is your family being sober and rallying, like getting it versus absolutely. like if you would not have had them, it oh might have God. been a more difficult road, but here's Ab- people that understood it. Yeah, Absolutely. However, you know, I do recognize had I also stayed in that relationship and stayed where I was with the people who were still drinking, my chances would not have been as good. Um, so I, I had to like go from the ground floor and change everything. And so for me, that was about asking for help. Um, and it was hard too, because I think another part of growing up in an alcoholic home is you pride yourself on being self-reliant and uh, to not be self-reliant and to reach out to people. And also, like, I guess on some level, it was maybe humiliating, like, that all this time, seeing what alcoholism had done to my dad and seeing what it had done to the rest of my family – to have it myself, yeah. like, yeah. oh, no, I ended up exactly the person I didn't want to be. And um, I think on a, on a certain level, it was devastating to kind of, like, have to get that humility of being like, oh, fuck, I have this, too. That, yeah, that is, like, a huge – like, I'm so glad you're talking about that, Sean. That is, like, such a huge – 
huge, like sort of white elephant in the room, so to speak, meaning that, yeah, like, like number one is growing up, I, you know, I kind of, in alcoholic home, I learned to be self-reliant, which then it actually, to me, makes a lot of sense why a lot of people then try to, and I love the words that you just said, which is contain it. Because I think so many people probably actually do that. It's like, I'm trying to contain this. And I'm, I've kind of been schooled to kind of take care of myself, figure things out. So now I'm going to try to figure this out. And then yet you finally come to terms with that, that you need help. But then there's like this embarrassment. There's this shame attached to, oh, my God, like, like I really like fucked up. Like I didn't want to be like my dad. And then that can almost like I've seen that spiral people into relapses. Like, oh, my God, I've lost these years. For sure. Or it keeps people out, too. You know, it keeps people drinking. And um, so it was uh, hard but really necessary, you know. Um, can I ask you a quick question? Of course. I'm, I'm like getting more and more juiced into this interview. Look out. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, how did you – do you know how you came to terms with that, that white, elephant, white elephant, that big thing, that shame attached with – all right, I didn't kind of see the writing on the wall when I probably could have many years ago because I think there's probably so many listeners that have been in that exact spot. And I'm just kind of curious about, is there any words of wisdom or things that you stumbled into that was like, oh, that moment in time really kind of helped me kind of break through that shame and that it maybe actually felt good in the end to kind of come clean and say, yeah, maybe I did make some mistakes. And that coming clean actually can be healing in itself. Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I don't know if it was one specific moment, but definitely as I started to go to meetings and listen to other people's stories and read different things, it was almost a relief, to be honest, to go, oh my God, that's what I have. That's what's wrong with me. Mm. I'm just an alcoholic, not just, but like it, the pieces fell into place for me when I was like, Oh my God, that's the disease that I have. That's what's happening with me. Because all this other time I was thinking, you know, my life's not working out because I'm not good enough because I'm less than because of all of these things. I'm not as perfect as my older brother. I'm not, I, you know, all these things, but it, but then when it was just like, no, I've just been dealing with this disease since really childhood. If you think about a 14 year old, I mean, I think about that little, I mean, honestly, like that's a kid at that age. I think we act like adults at that age, but I was a kid. And when I think about that kid, it's like, well, yeah, duh. Of course I would have that disease. Of course that would go on. So, To answer your question, it was really like a series of hearing different experiences to make the light go on for me, to to make me go, oh, yeah. And once I had that, it really was a relief. It opened it up for me to be more honest because dishonesty is a huge – and this is not unique for addicts or alcoholics, but it was a huge issue for me because another – thing of the coin of adult children of alcoholics is so much of your job is to present a package of what's going on in your house 
And a lot of times it's my role was like the clown. Like I created distraction. I got into trouble. I did all these different things just so you weren't noticing the real thing happening in my house. And so lying and hiding and all of that stuff was second nature to me. I don't know, by six or seven. Oh, so so just to kind of retrace our steps a little bit and just provide like a brief kind of highlight of two where I think are really value bombs for our listeners would be this idea that growing up in an alcoholic home, you were kind of like schooled to kind of present a great picture. Absolutely. And so then you get so good at schooling a great picture that then that becomes almost very problematic when you encounter a disease like alcoholism because it then it plays right into masking that disease. So it's sort of like Absolutely. mask is that what you're saying? Kind of like masking the family, then masking the disease. Yeah, for sure. And it made my journey to get honest with myself, I think probably longer than the other than other people, just because um it had been so ingrained I don't know if you've ever read a book by Mary Carr called uh, The Liar's Club. It's like a phenomenal memoir and kind of the reason why we have memoirs today. But it's um, that's her whole thing is that growing up with dishonest parents who were also alcoholics and she is a sober person now. Um, it, it really you learn it from the best and there's so much deception that happens in that kind of environment that when you're already predisposed to it, it just becomes second nature. Claudia Black, a researcher in the area of COAs, has identified three often unspoken rules in the alcoholic family. Don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. As denial is a common problem for alcoholics and their families, talking about the disease is just not allowed or tolerated. And the message sent to the kids is that they shouldn't talk about their problems, even when everyone knows they are there. The kids also learn what their parents tell them can't be trusted. Children look at their parents as the most trustworthy, important people in their lives, but promises made in the alcoholic homes are often not honored. In addition, emotions are not tolerated in alcoholic homes. Because like the denial system is so strong, emotions can be seen as a threat. Therefore, the kids are sent the messages that just emotions aren't acceptable and they should be alone with them and deal with them on their own. Unless they have a family, community, and the personal resources to have a slightly different outcome. So um, it was very freeing for me to be able to sit down in a room full of people I didn't know and just have that come out of my mouth that I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And, um, shortly the experience of being able to open up that other stuff too was freeing as well. And what I didn't know early on is that that actually helps other people. Mm-hmm. When you, you say, look, I'm going through this, this, and this, and I'm just trying not to drink over this, that somebody else somewhere in that same little room or whatever hears that and goes, oh, my God, me too. And that to me is the magic of recovery and recovering with other people and having a support system is that when you're able to do that, you're not making yourself just feel better. You're actually helping other people. You know, experience of, of others has saved my life. I um, 
So at seven months sober in 2009, I moved to the beach. I'd broken up with my ex. I went and had friend uh, coffee with one of my friends who is still my best friend in recovery. And um, I was saying, I think I need to go to the doctor. I don't feel great physically. And, um, and there's a bunch of stuff that I avoided. And while I was drinking, and I should probably go figure that out. And um, my friend said, do it. You know, absolutely do it. And I went to the doctor and... Recovery Nation, producer John here again. Sorry to leave you hanging, but join us next week for the conclusion of our conversation with Sean Mahoney. Thank you to Sean for joining us today, and make sure to visit his website, seanalogs.com. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz, Lovely Socialite, and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.